<clears throat> All right, everybody, welcome back to the Warrior Mindset and Motivation Podcast. I'm your host, retired Army Sergeant First Class Eric Castillo. I'm also a life coach at Zimi Wellness Center and in Indigenous Sovereignty. Today, our guest on the show is Christy Kaufman. She is uh, CEO of a nonprofit organization. Uh, reading her bio, she's done a lot with veterans. Uh, she has started this nonprofit a long time ago. And, you know, it's these type of nonprofit organizations that help veterans. Um, and it's really about making sure they get the exposure so that way veterans know that there's a resource out there. And a lot of the times it's just we don't know where to look or how to find things. So that's I like to have people who run nonprofits or who are a part of a nonprofit. So that way it's one more outlet, one more source for you to get some type of help because the help's out there. It's just you got to do a little bit of work to find the help. So for, for these, when I do have people come on like this, doing kind of a little bit of the work for you, you just have to go and click and go to their website and then get the help yourself. But uh, I'm going to have Christy give a little bit about herself and then her story. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, we were talking offline before and I was even kind of like, oh, okay, a little bit of things of some uh, that I was unaware of, which is interesting and it adds more to the story and it's actually more compelling that it is that way. So, uh, Christy, go ahead and give everybody here a little bit of a rundown about yourself and and we'll go from there. Great. Thanks, Eric. Hi, everybody. Uh, Yeah, I um, married a soldier in June 2001 because I had excellent timing and (laughs) I moved from Berkeley, California to Lawton, Oklahoma, which I always say was a culture shock for me and for Oklahoma. I don't think they ever got over it either. <laughs> so not only did I move from the West Coast to the middle of the country, a couple months later, 9-11 happened. And um, and yeah, my, my now former husband, Reese, started deploying like everybody else back then. The op tempo, if, if you all remember, was pretty crazy. And, you know, just from a military spouse point of view, I, I quickly realized the way the Army was going about family support and mental health was, um, in my opinion, inadequate and antiquated. Being the Berkeley girl that I am, tried to change the entire army. It turns out they love when wives do that. So I was just getting recent all kinds of trouble. <laughs> and so we were at SIL for like five years. And then he did commit his command at Bragg from 06 to 08. And I was talking to you, Eric, earlier because I know we just missed each other there. Um, and, uh, you know, if you all remember, 06 to 08 was some hard times. And, and we were, his battalion was a, uh, we were rotating batteries um, every six months. So, so we had Afghanistan and um, you know, so in one battalion at once, I was seeing like the impact of the soldiers and the families right before they went while they were there. And when they came back all at once, and it was a complete, you know, what show, right. I mean, it was just like, and I remember like they, they have the wives go to these um, pre-command courses and stuff um, with the husbands and I say wives and husbands because this was combat arms. Um, and uh, and I remember talking to some like general and I was like, okay, so let me just make sure I understand. I'm supposed to take care of like a thousand family members with no money and four volunteers. Is is that what you're saying here? Is that basically, he's like, yeah, that's basically what you're saying. I'm like, well, that's insane. It's <laughs> like, how is that going to work? I was like, that's not going to work, by the way. But you know, the way, you know, the, know how the army is and particularly at Bragg, you know, you serve there and there's a lot of great things about Bragg. It's real hua hua mm-hmm. and it's like good, great for esprit de corps, but it's also really traditional. Um, and so, you know, when I would ask the question, 
why are we doing it this way? This was in relation to like family stuff and mental health. 90% of the time, the answer was because that's the way we do it. I was like, well, yeah. I, I mean, how is that even an answer? You know, <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense, right? So anyway, so he was like maybe a year into his command and it was crazy. I mean, I, I we could not keep up. We, you know, kids needed mental health. Spouses were trying to take their own lives, you know, and I was just like, I don't, I don't have the resources to deal with this. Like I, I can only do what I can do here. Right. And so um, then in, um, I guess it was 07, General Casey came down. He was doing a tour of all the, uh, the like highly impacted installations as they made him chief of staff of the army. And, you know, he, we came to, he came to Fort Bragg and he was doing this like, I guess battalion commanders, brigade commanders, sergeant, sergeant majors, and their spouses were invited to hear his 10 point plan for the army. And then, you know, he was talking and then he's like, okay, I want to hear from you guys what's really going on. Right. And you know, oh, when you're at these fun. things, <laughs> when you're at these things and these, you know, people who have the chief of staff in the army in front of them just start saying the dumbest things like, you know, provincial, like oh, there's a pothole in my road, stuff that really is so below his level, you know, and I remember turning around, there was these two generals' wives sitting behind me, and I remember turning around and said, hey, are you guys going to say something about the families? Because, you know, we all agreed that this is not a sustainable situation, and I'm just lieutenant colonel's wife, so it'd probably come better from you than it would from me. And they're like, yeah, no, we're not saying anything. And Reese was actually home for his mid leave, and so I looked at him, and I, he was like, what do you have to do? And I stood up, and I said, sir, I want to make this really clear. It's not a three two seven problem. It's not a you know eighteen fires problem. It's not a brag problem. It's an army problem, which is why I'm talking to you about it. These family readiness groups were never meant to do what they were doing, and you know we're in deployment number six at this point, and you know it's broken. And I said we we were just voted the best FRG on this post, and let me tell you of all the stuff that we're dealing with, right? And so then I sat down and he's like, I totally hear you to his credit. You know, your you know, first deployment is a lot different than the third or fourth deployment. And that's why we're putting these. You remember those, they put those family readiness support assistance, FRSAs at battalion mm-hmm. level around that time. Yeah, they were civilians. Yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, it it was it was well intended, but mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently this is when I crossed the line. Um, I popped back up and I said, sir, that's a step in the right direction, but a GS6 is not going to do it. That's exactly, it was a GS6, someone who could help us with, you know, newsletters. And I I was like, that's, uh, we need social workers. I need mental health. I need money. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. these FRGs and still to this day are pretty much the army's only unfunded mandate. These captains and colonels and stuff, they have to have an FRG. They have to, it's part of the right. But but it's not staffed, right? It's it's like if your spouse doesn't do it, you got to find someone to do it, you know. And and I always had a lot of respect for for spouses that were like, yeah, no, I'm good, right? Because you know, like it's not really their job to take care of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that that kind of thing, the mentorship and stuff, works better in an informal situation. But when you mandate it, and you know, particularly when you have six, seven, eight deployments, people, you remember the first deployment, everybody's like, yay, we got this, you know, by three or four, you're like, yeah, I'm just going to turn inward and take care of my own family. Um, And so anyway, so I said that, and then I actually got a standing ovation. I thought, great, that went over well. And then we're driving home, and Reese's phone starts to ring. 
Oh my God, he got his butt handed to him by his brigade commander. Literally, I can hear dude screaming in the phone verbatim, get your wife under control. This is 2007, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this. Meanwhile, I have a couple degrees. I could be making money outside, but I was spending all this time because I knew that if I didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. There was no backup. It wasn't like, oh, if a wife decides not to help with this, then someone else is going to stay. That's it. There was no one. And I was raised in the family, you know, much is given, much is expected. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try to do this. But I was really like, you know, I can work in a broken system, but I can only do so much, right? So I put my head down for the following year and just did what I could for the families in our unit. And then we moved up to D.C. um, for his next assignment. I guess it was 2008. And I'm actually a pretty happy chick by nature. And I'm walking around all ticked off. and, And it was really because, like, I had tried so hard to support these families, but the system was just not built for it. And when we tried to inform the system, we just... You know, that didn't go well for him. Um, and it's one thing to like, you know, put yourself out there and risk risk whatever your reputation is or whatever. I didn't really care, right? Like I wanted to you know, to make sure I did the right thing for these families. But it's another thing when your spouse is involved, right? Like you know that, and then there's there's other risks that I, I had to pay attention to. So did what I could do. We moved up here or moved up to DC, and and then I was like, well. I got to do something else. Like something has to change here. And then I ended up writing an op-ed that was published in the Washington post 2009 and it was called army families under fire. And um, actually my original title, it was too long, but my original title was an Aussie and Harriet army in a 50 cent world, basically (laughs) saying like, you know, (laughs) but it was too long. They didn't run that. Um, Anyway. So then this op-ed published in May of 2009, and it was like I knew it was a big deal to get published in the Washington Post. Uh, I didn't know it was going to have the impact that it had. And you know, Reese was up for his 06 board when it published, so we had a real long conversation about you know the risk to his promotion if I went public with this. And I was I had a couple of mentors, and, uh, and they were like, "Look, you're actually probably safer going public." Um, because you've just been privately pissing people off for years. And so if, you know, Reese had top blocks as a battalion commander and, you know, there was no reason he shouldn't have made 06. Um, And so we, and I said to him, I was like, look, I don't think this is going to keep you from getting your, that promotion, but if you want to be a general, this might, you know, block that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be a general. So, so went ahead and did it and um, it got quite the response. And I think one of the reasons it resonated so much, I mean, number one, it's a pretty good article. It wasn't just a slam piece. It's like, this is what's going on. This is why, and this is three things we can do about it. Um, but I also ran right before social media took off. And so there wasn't, wives didn't really have a voice at that point. And so this is the first time kind of a, a wife really stepped outside the lines publicly and it was so interesting because I got like a thousand emails from people and and 95 percent of them were like, thanks for having the courage and taking the risk of writing something like this. The only people that pushed back um, tended to be more senior spouses and they didn't push back on what what I said, because it is what it is. This was happening. But they they pushed back on the fact that I shouldn't have said it like publicly. Right. Right. You know, that that we should take care of this in-house. And it and I responded to almost everybody 
that that emailed me and um you know, I always said to them, we stand on the shoulders of those who have served before us. So thank you so much for what you've done as a military spouse. Um, and I said, and, you know, I tried for seven years to do it the right way. I really did. And, and even when, you know, General Casey came down, I'm not a jerk. I didn't just stand up in front of the chief of staff of the army and just lay stuff down. I mean, for four years, I tried to do it through, you know, all the ways yeah. they have for spouses to do thing, AFAP and steering committees and all that. But but I, the things I was talking about were systemic. They weren't fixes that could have been made at installation level. They were army, congressional, DOD level fixes that needed to be made. And there's not really a good way to do that um, if you're a spouse, right? So that's why I felt compelled to to write the op-ed. And so, you know, when something like that happens, it's like you're the flavor of the minute. Everybody's like reaching out to you and and I was scared. Like I, you know, I was like, oh my God, what did I do? You know, I'm glad that I elevated this, this as a discussion, but n- now what do I do? Right. And, and I remember thinking to myself, well, was my only contribution here to write an op-ed and to, to talk about it, or am I supposed to do something else now? And um, so all these organizations were reaching out and the army reached out and tried to hire me and, um, and I knew enough to know I didn't know enough. I was right about what I said, but I didn't really understand the, the larger picture. I, I didn't understand other service branches. I didn't understand the nonprofit sector. I didn't understand really how Congress, like I didn't understand any of that stuff. So I put my head down for a couple of years to really learn. And, you know, and, and you know, people, you know, when, you, when you're the flavor of the minute, people are trying to get you to join things. And, and I said to everybody, I'm really looking forward to working with you, but I'm not exactly sure where I'm supposed to be yet. So I need to figure that out before, you know, I, I make a move. And, and this kind of goes to to your, you know, your kind of core discussion around transition and like, how do you make those choices? I mean, at the time I was married. And so it's not like I had to jump for a job. Right. So a lot of us, when when we when we have these you know, transitions, you just got to make the money. Like you were talking about that, right? Like, mm. yeah, I got I to gotta make money. I've got to support my kids, my wife, whatever. So I did have some room there that I didn't have to jump at the first thing. Um, but I also was like, well, you know, what responsibility do I have now? Like, so mm. I've, I, I'm now like being promoted as this, this wife that, you know, has said this stuff. And now what do I do with that? Um, and, and like I said, I just, I wasn't comfortable that I knew enough about the whole thing to really make a a scalable difference. And so that's really when I put my head down for a couple of years to understand. And I went to all these conferences and meetings. And meanwhile, my phone's ringing off the hook for my girlfriends who, who are struggling. I mean, you know, two babies on their hip and a husband with PTS and TBI didn't know what to do. And you know, so that all is still happening as I'm trying to figure out like, okay, what can I do about it at a, at a higher level than what I had been doing is, you know, just a spouse of a, you know, of, of an army officer. So, so then I met, um, about two years later, I met my co-founder, General Salisbury, who's a Vietnam veteran, you know, and, and his experience al- along with, you know, a lot of the Vietnam veterans when, when they came back, they just didn't have anything. They didn't have support. They didn't. They didn't even have the support of the country, you know, like right. what generation does. Like they might not agree with the war, but that is one one lesson that I think we learned on the backs of Vietnam veterans: how to separate our dislike of a war from the warrior, right? So, yeah. like we we didn't 
our generation wasn't really challenged with any of that. Everybody was kind of like really supporting troops, um, you know, regardless of whether or not they thought we should have been in Iraq and Afghanistan. But those guys, when they came back, they just didn't have resources. And that's why, you know, you look today at, at, you know, negative outcomes for veterans, suicide, homelessness, it's still mostly the older folks, right, that have made up those numbers because they didn't have access to resources. Now, our generation, there's so much out there, no one can find it. Either way, yeah. the United States the same. People don't get what they need. And so after that two years, and I met Alan, General Salisbury, and we were like, okay, there is there isn't any organization that is actually dedicated solely to integrating all this effort, right? You mentioned in the, in your introduction, like, you know, you're trying to let people know that these organizations exist, but even if you knew all 40,000, like, like how, do you, yeah. how do you possibly navigate any of that? And that's if you're in the best of mental health and the majority of yeah. folks that we work with our code of support are not, they are in crisis. And so expecting people whose hair's on fire to try to navigate the VA, the nonprofits, the state stuff, all that. It's just unreasonable. So Coder Support, the organization that we've built um, over the past 10 years, really is the organization that integrates effort. So you can call us and we'll either take your case, which means we're going to figure out what's going on with you, which is usually more than one thing, you know, maybe a financial issue plus a benefits issue. If you have a financial issue, there's other things going on that that need to be addressed, Right. So we peel back that onion during an intake process, recognize all the things that are factoring into that crisis state, build a service plan with you, and then just start figuring it out, right? We go and leverage all these organizations and agencies and start pulling to cover down on the, the needs of the veteran or the service member and also the family members as well. So we take a really holistic approach to that. Um, and it, it basically, it's that one point of contact so that you don't feel like you have to figure it out all by yourself. Because um, it's impossible. It's like yeah. trying to do your taxes by yourself without like TurboTax or something like that. You need, you need, you know, people and technology that will help you do that. Um, and so we built that program that's called our case coordination program. So if if anybody listening is in need of of those kinds of services, basically trying to figure out what to do, where to go, um, that's you know that's something that's a program that that we can offer. And as we built that program, we recognized it was taking our case managers sometimes half of their week just to identify the correct resources because we work nationally and we're working with people all across the country. So that's really what drove the development of our PatriotLink technology platform. So as we're looking at like how can how can we scale this holistic case coordination effort, it was really like we need a technology platform that will allow us to identify and, and quickly find the right resources at the right time. So anybody who has tried to look for a resource usually uses Google, right? Like everybody turns to Google first. Um, and let's say you're looking for a mental health resource and you put mental health veteran and your zip code, you're going to get like 5,000 things pull up. Yeah, it's a lot. Like <laughs> It's a lot, right? So what we've done with Patriot Link is as, we, as we've populated it, and it's got, I think, over 7,000 programs in it now, which is about over 10,000 services, We've tagged everything, not just by the services it offers, or offers, but eligibility criteria. So what are some of the things that determine eligibility? Like pre or post 9-11, disability status, discharge status, branch of service. Like, you know, so there are some organizations that only work with Marines. There are some organizations that only do honorable. There are some organizations that, you know, only do someone with 40 percent or more disability. 
So as we build these program profiles, we're tagging these profiles by those criteria. So that when you, and by the way, this is free. So anybody can go on right now, patriotlink.org, sign up for a free account and start searching. And so we have local, regional and national resources in there. So if you're looking for a financial resource, financial counseling, those types of things, you can go in there um, and, and quickly find what you need based on the information that you give us. So in the beginning, you can just do a really general search and you'll have, you know, you'll pull up 50 things and then you can give us additional information through the advanced filter and that will um, that will narrow it down to the ones that you're actually going to um, you're going to qualify for. So it's just basically cutting through all the the muck um, and all the different things out there. You, it has to provide a direct service. Like we have five criteria to get into Patriot Link. Has to provide a direct service. That's really important because there's a lot of great organizations out there that do advocacy work, but if you call them, they're not going to help you directly. Right. Like if, if you're looking to get your light bill paid or you're looking for help with transportation or you're looking for help for mental health, actual mental health, you're not going to get that from an advocacy organization. So has to provide a direct service, has to be free, um, has to be fiscally transparent and financially responsible. So if we're looking at nonprofits, we're looking at their financials to make sure there's nothing screwy going on um, when we talk to them, because each each program we talk to them just because what they say on their website and what they're often doing isn't matching up. So we actually have to talk to the people over there. They have to indicate capacity. Um, and so, and they have to be responsive. So we go out three times via phone, three times via an email to try to get them on, you know, to try to get this information to verify it. Um, and so we do all of those things so that you don't have to, basically it allows people to just use the tool quickly, get what they need and get out, uh, which is what people want to do. So, yeah, so it's, we're going into our 10th year. Um, and, uh, and we're changing lives every day and we, and we want to scale that. That's why we have the technology. Um, cause we knew if our folks need it, if our case managers need it, everybody needed it. Right. So we, we have an MOU with the VA. We work with them very closely. Um, and we're, we're really, our, our goal is to get the platform, PatriotLink platform up, upstream into the transition process. You imagine getting out. And you can, I mean, the fact that we don't have a technology platform to support transition in the year 2021 is crazy. Yeah. Right. And that's crazy, particularly I mean, during a pandemic. I mean, I got out in 2018 and they changed everything to soldier for life. And that's what it is now. And you go through like a week of stuff. And that's if your unit even gives you the, the time. They claim to give you the time, but then like you can't go do anything after because they want you to go back to work. They don't, a lot of them, I'm not saying all of them do, but a good majority of them don't give you that opportunity to transition to yeah, prepare. And, and, to set yeah, up. and also like you, when you do transition, it's like a fire hose, right? Like, you know, they give you all kinds of stuff and, and, and paper, like really paper in 2020, 21, it didn't even work in 20 because it was COVID and they had to do everything virtually. So I actually think that helped us in terms of our, you know, of our, work with the government, like, look, we have this technology platform um, that we're trying to give the government for free uh, and say, hey, you can use this to, to support people's transition so that all, you know, just download the app. You know, we're working on an app now, download the app and um, and then it's on your phone. So three months after you get out, if you forgot everything that they told you in there, get on the app and, and you know, find the resources that you need. It's there in your pocket. 
because I think that, you know, most, most of us, when we transition, we're just trying to get out, get out of Dodge and go wherever we're going to go and, you know, and, and get to the next part of our life. And we don't really think about some of the things that, that we might need. Um, and maybe we don't need them right away. And maybe we need them six months, a year later. A lot of times, I don't know if this was your experience, but a lot of times, you know, things like PTS and TBI, particularly when they're not diagnosed, don't manifest really themselves until a couple of years after you get out. Like you just kind of run and run and run and you're doing your job. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I've got to deal with this. Um, so something you might not necessarily have paid attention to before mm-hmm. when you were getting out because you're just trying to get a job and figure out where you want to live. You know, now a couple of years later, you really need help with and who the heck's going to remember what they told you in top class two years ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't. That's for sure. Like nobody could. I just, the only thing I remember is sitting there and having them make me create, make, have them set up my username and ID for the, um, the mill access, like the DLD mill access for, um, uh, ID me and, uh, uh, va.gov and stuff. That's, that's really the only thing I remember is setting that stuff up. And they said, Oh, make sure you create an email that has your first and last name. So that way it looks better than some of the crazy email names that people have. So that's, that's all I really remember. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I will say, um, you know, DOD and the VA. And De- so there's there's three agencies that are, are basically involved with transition. There's DOD. I mean, they technically own it. Right. Because you're still actually an active duty military when you go through TAP. The VA, Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Labor, you know, Department of Labor there is there to really help guide uh, potential employment opportunities and all that. So they all have a piece of the, that curriculum. Um, and they all are paying attention. They are trying to get better in terms of what kind of content they're providing. Um, but the big thing that's missing there is a bridge to any community-based kind of help. And, you know, people don't move to federal agencies. They move back into their communities. And so if we don't have a way to effectively bridge as people transition to opportunities and support in communities, in addition to, because we have all the VA resources and all the the government stuff in there too. But I I do think that our community needs to get real and think that like the VA, even if it was working perfectly, is never going to be the entire answer. It can't be. It, Mm -hmm. you know, it does benefits and healthcare and, and a couple of other things, but it's not going to take you fly fishing. It's not going to, you have a spouse, it's not going to give your spouse mental health. Right. Like, you know, so there's lots of different things that need to be addressed by nonprofits, community based organizations. And they're there. We're here, you know, and there's you know, this isn't a problem for us. We, we always have a, a queue of people waiting for us. But um, there's a lot of nonprofits and community based organizations that are looking to help veterans that don't have enough veterans coming through their door. That's one of the reasons they want to be in Patriot Link because they want more people to come to them. Uh, and it's not like the need's not out there. We know that. We know the need's out there. And so it's just basically trying to connect the dots. Oh, and the other really cool thing about Patriot Link is, so in the back end of the system, we're anonymizing and aggregating all of this data, which allows us to do real-time trend identification and gap analysis. For, so for instance, in the beginning of the pandemic, a couple of weeks after it began, we saw a big spike for searches for food in Patriot Link. We had never seen that before. We had never seen people literally just searching for food. But as you know, this hit everybody hard, particularly 
military veteran folks who are, you know, we're already kind of living on that line. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and we know that food insecurity is a problem and not just in veteran community, but active duty. I mean, I remember in our unit, there were plenty of, you know, E1s and E2s on food stamps and SNAP. Right. Like, you know, we all know that that happened. Uh, And so, you know, what happened was during the pandemic, you know, most, uh, you know, junior enlisted families have a two income. And so when and usually that second income is, you know, something like working at a store, something that was going to be impacted by the pandemic. So all that money went away and they were like, you know, one income family. And so um, food insecurity became a big thing. And because we had a technology platform, we were able to quickly realize, oh, we have a gap in resources. And even though it's not military veteran specific, we went ahead and put all the food pantries in the country and they're tagged them by geography. So when people were searching for food, they could find, you know, a, a resource aside from SNAP and all that kind of stuff. So that's the really cool thing about the platform too, is the more people that use it, and we're hoping for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of veterans and family members to use it, we can get all this real-time data that will help inform not just what we're putting in PatriotLink, but inform the whole space. Like, hey, North Dakota, you have 500 veterans come, or transitioning service members coming from Fort Carson. 80% of them are looking for mental health. Heads up, right? Yeah. And so instead of being reactive, being proactive, um, same thing with gaps. Like, hey, we can see in your community, you have a lot of searches for this resource and y'all don't have anything. You have very few. On the other hand, you have 18 resources for stuff that nobody's searching for. So, you know, like looking at in a resource scarce environment, how we are funding, what we're, you know, what we're putting our energy towards um, so that, that we can get better at, at making decisions. It's based on data as opposed to, you know, my sister's uncle's dog has you know, this opinion or this nonprofit or whatever. Um, and so I want to make it clear, though, that like, we can't see what Eric's searching for. There's a firewall. So we're we, we can't see what individual veterans are searching for or family members. All we see is like the back end aggregate of that that, that helps uh, helps us tell other organizations and agencies in the space what's happening in real time. So right now we have to, you know, wait two years and for, you know, a data to come out from CDC or from the VA that is two years old. Right. So, you know, imagine if we could have a real time data set and what that would do for for our community. Well, so, yeah. yeah, that's kind of what we're doing. I mean, we're took a big that'd bite be, of the apple there. Yeah, that'd be that actually would help because I know that usually for stuff like that, you have to wait. And then by the time that you get that study two years later, the it's different. So is yeah, it that still, yeah, is it still relevant, right? And yeah. we don't know because we don't have that that data. So we have a partnership. We just launched a partnership with Google, which is really exciting because you know it's one thing to call your own organization the organization best position to connect veterans to resources. When Google does it, <laughs> when Google <laughs> says you have a technology platform that we think is best position to connect veterans and their families to resources, that's a whole different. Thing. So having their support, not just the, you know, the financial support, but the, but the expertise on the analytics and, and, you know, technology development, that's been a, that's been a game changer for us, definitely. Right. And then um, as we're going, you mentioned your, um, your co-founder and I'm just curious, how did you, how'd you meet him? Because, you know, it's a Vietnam veteran, uh, general at that, like, I, I'm curious to see how, how that, uh, partnership came to be because that's not like a typical uh, partnership of, in that nature. So how did how did you and him actually meet and come up with this idea to do this? 
So the same way it always works in our in our in our community, we have, you know, it's like it's like the two degrees of separation when you're in the military, particularly the army. So we had a mutual friend. Uh, his Alan is West Point class of '58. His classmate uh, has a daughter, and I met his daughter, you know, probably 13, 14 years ago through Reese's Brigade commander at a football game. And then after the op-ed ran, um, Bridget um, was like, okay, you know, Alan, you should talk to Christy because he wanted to start something. And yeah, and that's how it happened. And then we just, you know, I think most of us have stereotypes about what generals are like. Um, and Alan's not that stereotype at all. Um, he got out after almost 30 years. He, he, he basically brought computers into the army. So he has a PhD from Stanford. He graduated. So he's real dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but he, you know, he had this passion of, of how do we bridge, you know, the civilian military divide. Um, and then when I came into the picture, I was like, okay, let's bridge the civilian military divide, but we got divides within the community itself in terms of connecting the resources. So yeah, that's how that happened. I mean, we had our first coffee together at, at a coffee shop and I mean, I certainly didn't think that like, you know, her life is, you know, when I wrote that op-ed, I didn't think, oh, this is going to lead to a nonprofit. Like, I didn't have that mm -hmm. at all. It was like, okay, I feel like if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. That right. I, I, had, I felt morally obligated to say something. I did not think anything actually, you know, good would come out of it for me. Like, I really thought it was going to actually hurt us, me and my my husband. But I was like, I got to do it. Um and then you just, you know, things unfold and, and then you pay attention um, and you, you look at you look at opportunities and, and then you look at your own skill set and thinking, you know, one of the things that I've always been able to do well is translate, like, like being able to take what people down on the ground are saying in a way and articulate it so that people way up here can hear it the right way. Like I'm good at that, right? Like mm -hmm. so, I knew that 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 I could, I could work with that skill and and use it to, you know, to to try to shrink the hierarchy because the military is such a hierarchy, and I understand why it needs to be that way, but also can lead to really slow, ineffective, you know, policies and programs. And I remember when uh, after the op-ed ran, I. I got called to the principal's office quite a bit. I went into the Pentagon several times. And you remember, like, I didn't have any organization at this point. I was, quote, unquote, just a wife. So if yeah. someone tells me to come to the Pentagon, I guess I got to go, right? Yeah. You know, and and so I met with, the at the time, the secretary of the Army. He's a really nice guy. His name was Pete Guerin. Um, and, uh, you know, he – and this was so interesting. And all the folks up there were like, look, you know, we've spent – millions if not billions of dollars on on family programs and mental health and all of that and all of that was true um but but i in the op-ed i didn't say that we weren't trying i i said i think i said the army's effort was haphazard sluggish and widely ineffective i never said they weren't trying right um, but but i think the problem in bureaucracies is that um you can't judge success based on money spent and programs created. And when you look at what, how we measure success in large organizations, it's usually that it's like, you know, how many 
pencils did we order? <laughs> like how many, right. You know, how many deployment briefings did we give? And, and, and that's kind of, you know, those are easy things to measure. So I understand why people do it, but that doesn't mean that the 80,000 programs that you created actually worked. Right. So, so the oversight and the accountability um, was lacking, you know, and, and that ended up, we spent a lot of money on things that, that didn't really work, you know? Um, and my argument was like, look, if you're going to give, you know, a million dollars to army community services, how about you kick down some of that to the unit level you know, so that, you know, I can have five grand a year for this FRG. For example, one of the things that would happen all the time is, you know, again, you know, it was like after several deployments, no one's coming to those briefings anymore because it's the same briefing. It's like a half hour from the Red Cross and the chaplain and all that. And people have heard it all before. So the only way we could get people to come to listen to things is if we had money for pizza and bowling. If we had childcare for the kids, like you had, to me, that was mission essential. It wasn't like, you know, a, you know, a frill. It was, it was like, look, if you want people to show up and you want to give them information, then you have to give them a reason to be there other than a dry briefing. Um, right. And then at the same time, if your spouse didn't go, you had to be there. I went to countless FRGs alone. What in my previous marriage, I went to them by myself because they're like, if your spouse is not coming, you're going to be there. And I'm like, well, OK, so I'll just get to hear you talk again and just in a nicer tone. <laughs> like, Yeah. And so and then, you know, there's a lot of people that got super turned off by FRGs and I don't blame them because they were like any the FRG is going to be dependent on the command climate. Right. So, you know. This is getting like a little bit personal, but all right. So when 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 Reese was in battalion command, there is an expectation for officer's wife, particularly at that level, to join the officer's wife club. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would have happily joined the officer's wife club because they did a lot of fun stuff. They did wine tastings and they also did charity events. And I was like, yeah, go to them. But I didn't feel like I could join because how am I supposed to, to lead a family readiness group that has no rank, supposedly, mm -hmm. and then join a group that is rank based? I, to me, that that was too much cognitive dissonance. I didn't think that was leading by example. And so, you know, I was like, OK, I'll be I'll and I'll go to your things, but I can't join it. You know, it, it sends the wrong message. Right. And so like every six months when they would do like a briefing at the town hall and I was like, have you guys voted to open it up? to, uh, you know, to, you know, enlisted spouses, because almost every place in the military had at that point, just Fort Bragg was one of the few places that hadn't done it. It really mm -hmm. was a business decision because, you know, back in the day, Oak Club was the only game in town. Mm -hmm. Look at Fort Bragg. I mean, it's, there's so much stuff in Fayetteville, you know, that, that it wasn't, so they had to figure out a way to, to support a membership, but Fort Bragg is Fort Bragg and it's very traditional and they kept voting it down. Um, and so I kept, you know, not joining or whatever. And so then um, in our FRGs, you know, it was supposed to be traditionally, it was like first sergeant's wife, lieutenant's wife, captain's wife, whatever, like, right. But so you weren't technically, at least traditionally supposed to go under first sergeant wife for these FRG groups. And I thought to myself, geez, anybody that's volunteering for the FRG can come to these things. Like, I, you know, like, Anybody, I don't care what rank your husband is, if you're willing to help out the battalion, 
you are more than welcome to come to these, not the FRG briefings, but the coffees is what they used to call yeah. those. Coffees used to be really like more officer wife-ish, you know. So then we stopped calling it coffee and we started calling it get together and, and there was wine involved, but you know, so, but that, but that worked for us because that, that helped, you know, people feel included, like they were part of the solution and, and it worked. And that was the, the whole point. And the FRG, you know, I think some of the more traditional spouses would look at it as, you know, they would create some kind of, um, plan or tone or whatever, and then people would carry it out. And I thought, like, I don't really care what we do. Uh, what do you guys want to do? And then I'll support that, right? Because the whole point of an FRG is readiness, family yeah. readiness group. So if if readiness means that you guys want to, like, you know, meet for wine once a month, fine, we'll do that. I don't really care what it is. Um, and so, uh, you know, that worked well for us, but I did, I absolutely got pushback on that from other spouses that, that were more traditional and like, well, you do you, and we're going to do it this way because, you know, I'm, I'm driven by outcome. You know, if, if my role is to try to make this battalion as ready as it can be, and families obviously play a huge part in that, then I'm going to do what I think is going to get us there, regardless of you know, what the tradition is that's why i was saying you know why do we do it this way and this is the way we do it that's not that's not an answer to me that's right. just an excuse right um, and, and, and it shows that like with all your it, and it's incredible really with all that frg experience all that officer experience all of that kind of just and then that that article you wrote for the washington post all that kind of just it it kind of manifested all of itself into this uh amazing uh organization you have now um and it seems like it just all your experience kind of just pours into that so it's like you got you learned your rights and your wrongs and what works what doesn't work and what makes it better and then you you came up with this incredible nonprofit that helps veterans i know i checked out the patriot link and it's actually kind of neat um what you type in there what you look for it's very very helpful and resourceful like you can kind of get you can you can lose some time in there just digging around searching for things on patriot link it's really really neat yeah. And, you know, I think that, thank you, first of all. And, and I, I, I will, I want to make it clear to everybody that like, I make mistakes every day. I learn from them, but like, I, I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, once you do something and you've gotten to this level and, you know, that, you know, like a, you know, I'm a nonprofit executive, I'm running this organization that I kind of fell ass backwards into creating, but like, that's, that's kind of, you that's the journey of life, right? Like you, you can't expect perfection every day. And I think those of us in the military veteran culture are pretty hard on ourselves. Like, you know, you know, it's good that we are, that we have high standards, but um, you know, it's like you, 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 you make a mistake and you change course. And that's all yeah. I ever really wanted. Like I, like, of course there are going to be missteps. Of course the government and VA and DOD aren't going to do everything right all the time. It's the ability to learn and then shift course, right? And I remember talking to to this general one time, and it was, I think it was before I started Code of Support, but, um, you know, he was like, well, you know, we, we can't just change a culture. He was talking about family, mental health, you know, in the, in the, you know, like the drop of a hat. And I said, I understand, but we literally just changed our entire strategy in Iraq when we went to coin in three months. 
Mm-hmm. So you can actually do that if if an organization or an agency is motivated to do something, they can do it. Particularly in the military, where there's it's harder in the VA side because it's so much more decentralized. But in the DOD side of the house, it's like you remember when when General Corelli, who was who was vice, would say he was really like super. Um, you know, good into suicide prevention and TBI. And he took it on as a personal mission. Really amazing. And he would send out these all con emails. Like you, you remember for a while they were having anybody with a mental health profile, put a freaking orange vest on. <laughs> during yeah. it's like, talk about stigma, you know? Yeah. And so when he found out, he's like, all con stop. And it stopped the next day, no longer happened. Like, you know, so I'm not saying that that, that that things don't change on the ground, but at least there's a direct chain of command that when, you know, when the commander says this is going to happen, it's not going to happen. VA, totally different beast, right? VA central, and then you've got all these VA hospitals and they're divided into prisons and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's even harder, I think, in the VA side to, to make changes like that. But, you know, I, uh, change is possible. And, and I think that some of us feel so like, oh, it's so big, you know, that the, you know, the government's so big, I can't, it can't make a difference and nothing's going to matter. But I would really encourage people to try not to look at it that way, because even though 80% of the time, sometimes I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall, you know, we, we have done something here like that, that, Patriot Link is changing the way people access services. We're 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 helping people through. Like, I decided that the op-ed wasn't going to be enough, and I took the next step, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and then that changes things, right? And so, you know, as you as folks transition out of the military, or even if you've been transitioned for a while, you know, even though you you sometimes feel like it doesn't matter, it does. What you do matters, and the choices that you make, and know, and, and your ability to keep serving just because you're not wearing the uniform anymore doesn't mean that you can't serve. Right. I'm really encouraged people to look at that. And I'm no longer married to Reese. We got divorced like 10 years ago and I still am doing this. Um, and my, my, my affinity and my, my passion and dedication um, to the military and veteran community comes from my own experience. Like I gotta be honest with you, like I grew up in New York. I went to school in the West Coast. I'd never lived anywhere other than a coast and kind of grew up upper middle class. I didn't really know anybody in the military. Um, I met my I met my husband, the only place a girl that went to Berkeley could meet a guy that went to West Point, Vegas. We met the wrong jungle. <laughs> it's the only place those two worlds could possibly collide. Um, you know, and then then I got married right before a war started. And so like just because we're no longer together doesn't mean that I didn't have that experience and I didn't have, you know, friendships that I made in the military that are for life. Right. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, it's so, I'm, I'm sure you guys had this during deployment, but like being left behind during a deployment is its own challenge. And, and, and you, and you end up creating your own bonds with, with folks. So a lot of the girls I served with whose husbands were in, I, on on paper, I really didn't have a lot in common with them, right? Because a lot of people in the military either grew up kind of in a military, you know, like kind of in that system or, um, you know, are from places like the middle of the country or the South or whatever, places I wasn't familiar with. So culturally, we didn't have 
a ton in common. But tell you what, when you send your husband to war, uh, that's that trumps everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you end up um, having these relationships that, you know, my civilian girlfriends were very supportive, but they didn't know. They don't know right. what it's like. I mean, I remember Reese's first deployment early on. I was sitting there in our little house in Lawton, Oklahoma, and he it was really early on. And so, y'all, you remember, we didn't didn't have cell phones or whatever. He yeah, there was nothing. A, yeah, he borrowed a reporter's sat phone and called me after like three months or something like that. I'm talking to him for a couple of minutes and I hear this huge explosion and the phone goes dead. So there I sit for five hours with the shades open, waiting for that freaking car, you know, before he could call me back again and say he was okay. And so you can't, no one knows what that's like unless you know what that's like. And so I think that the relationships that, that, that I built in the, in the military community and the spouses and stuff, those will always be a part of my, my life, regardless of what we have, quote unquote, in common, beside from that. Right. Well, that's all of this is is super incredible. I'm glad that you were able to come on here and talk about Code of Support. And it really is. It, it really is. It's a support platform. And the name is it. It, it, it speaks itself. Um, so if you have uh, since we're wrapping up here, uh, if you can give a, a closing, a closing, closing a message for vets, you know, if, so that way, if, if anything sticks into their head, if you want to try to get something to stick into their head, you know, to battle any type of thoughts that they're having or anything or something like that, or just um, any type of thing you can give to them um, motivational wise, what, what could you tell them? Yeah, I would say you are not alone in this. I mean, I think a lot of us, when we leave the military, you, you, you lose not just that sense of service and mission, but you lose that community that, that you had in a lot of cases. And um, it's still there. Uh, and, and we're part of that community. So if you need help, reach out, whether it's us, anybody else. The, this thing is the first thing we tell people when they call us and what, you know, what makes them feel relieved is, okay, we're here with you now. We got this with you. You're not alone. Um, and so even though, and I've gone through this myself where I know the support's out there, and it, but I have felt before isolated and had to pull myself out of that. You're, if you feel that way, your only job is to reach out. If you can get yourself to reach out, whether that's to Eric, uh, to me, to the organization, to your, just if you can do that, that's the first step in your road to being able to, to come back. You know, because I'm sure there's people listening to this who feel like crap, right? And they feel like it doesn't matter anymore. And, you know, why are they here? And, and all of that kind of stuff is that it, it does matter. And there are people out there that that will be able to help bring you back. And that you have earned that. Through your service, you have earned that. So all these nonprofits and all of these federal agencies are there for a reason. And we raise money because we know that this community has earned this kind of support um, and it's, it's there for you. So I would just say, before you give up, reach out. And, you know, you can, you can reach out to us at codasupport.org. Just send us a little note and, and we will get someone to call you and, and start, you know, start the process of figuring out what to do. Um, I know it feels like when you do it alone, when you have to do it alone, it's undoable. Um, but but we got you. 
we got you, whether it's us or, or, or another organization that we can connect you to, uh, you are not alone in this. That's, 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 that's awesome. That's, I think can't, I can't even say anything off of that. Usually, you know, I can kind of spin something every now and then I kind of just get shut down with the perfect message. And that's, that's a good one. Everyone has great messages at the end. You know, sometimes I just like to reiterate a couple of things because kind of intuition speaks, but with that one, there's nothing that's, that's perfect. 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 So, um, I, Christy, thanks for taking the time today to come on and talk and spread your organization in uh, just another outlet for us to to resource. And if those who haven't checked out PatriotLink.org, check it out. I, I checked it out because I want to be able to speak on it. So I, I checked it out a couple months ago and even a couple of weeks ago, just kind of went back to it. And it's 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 pretty good. It will definitely point you in the right direction uh, if you're looking for something. And plus, yep. your and if you need more help than just a technology platform, contact us directly, and you can talk to a human being, and we and we got you. Either right. one, you can start with Patriot Link. I would say, see if you can find what you need. If you need more help than that, just reach out to us, and we'll get we'll get you situated. Right, and and you're and you're re, and you're searching on there helps give them data. So yep. I mean, you're also helping them. You're helping yourself, and you're helping them to help veterans as a whole. So thanks for uh, coming on today. Uh, Christy, thank you everyone for listening to the the podcast today. I hope you guys got something good out of it. Um, again, uh, codeofsupport.org. If you guys, if for any vets who need a resource, or even if you're not a veteran, you know a veteran who needs help. You know, the, you're, you're not family members can... too. We've got stuff for family members. You don't have to be a military or veteran. You can be a caregiver. You can be a family member. We will help. Right. So they, it's a, it's a spectrum all across the board. So uh, thanks, Christy, for coming on. Thanks. Um, and then thank you everyone for tuning in and tune in next week because we've got another awesome show um, next week. So just tune in, follow. Uh, I don't know what phase follow, like, subscribe, whatever the heck they do on here. So you can stay tuned in, set a reminder so that way you know, because I do them every Thursdays. So there's always somebody on here and you're going to learn something from somebody. So appreciate everybody for watching. I appreciate Code of Support and see you guys next week. Thanks.